This episode contains descriptions of violence and sexual assault. Discretion is advised. This is the Cul-de-Sac Insomniac, and I'm Ophelia. And I'm Tori, and we're going to keep you up all night. Ophelia, you want to hear some weird science facts? Yes, I always want to hear some weird science facts. Do you know that babies have a hundred more bones than adults? That's so weird. Yeah. Where do they go? Do they just fuse together maybe? I think so, right? How is that how is that possible? Because like their skull is not totally together when they're born. Did you know that a teaspoonful of neutron star would weigh six billion tons? How could anyone know that? How did who went out with there with a teaspoon? <laughs> checked. They're like, okay, yes, let me get... And, like, how come they didn't use the tablespoon? You know what I mean? I have so many questions about this. Yeah. Um, in 2.3 billion years, it will be too hot for life to exist on Earth, or as I like to call it, next February. Well, yeah. No, I mean, we're rapidly approaching that. I think that that's a... Well, this is too hot for any life to exist on Earth. Like, mm. it will evaporate the oceans. Okay. It may soon get too hot for us to exist on Earth. That's fair. But like other stuff. That's like a good point. Cockroaches. Yes. There could st- and but like, like even the cockroaches. Like trees. Yeah. Hmm. The trees who, who, judging by what happened during the pandemic, will be thrilled to see the back end of us. Oh, hell yeah. I think everybody's going to be thrilled to see the back yeah. end of us. Half of us are going to be Most thrilled. Most of us will be thrilled to see uh. the back end of us. Yikes. Polar bears are nearly undetectable by infrared cameras because they're so good at conserving heat. That's insane. That is insane. Wow. Go polar bears. Yeah. And if you took out all the empty space in our atoms, the human race would fit into a cube of sugar. What? That's why I don't like science. Well, I, and it's too <sighs> sciencey. Well, and how do they come up with these things? You know, they're like, exactly. well, I did the math, and you're but the I size mean, of a particle here's, of sugar. Here's what I, the little bone in my pinky finger, yeah, wouldn't fit into a sugar cube. So how is that? I don't know. I don't understand that. In the whole human race? Uh, yeah. I hate that. I hate that so much. Stomach acid is strong enough to dissolve stainless steel. Hmm. Don't love that either. And flea can accelerate faster than the space shuttle. What the fuck? Why? Why? Why do we know this information? <laughs> All I think of when I hear the stuff, okay, well, the science, the, the space stuff, okay, you probably have to know the f- other reasons, but like, who's calculating the fleas? Yeah. And why? Why There's are we nothing else that you could spending our science money? Yeah, I don't know. Like they get funded for that. Why is our Gotta science wonder. money being spent on fleas? I really don't know. And like, how did they? I I want to believe so badly that they put a tiny little collar on the flea to figure out how fast they're going. Even though little, I know that's not what they GoPro. did. But right, <laughs> it has GoPro. to be that. That's the only solution I will accept. That's it. I know that's not how they did it, but that's the only thing I will believe from now on. I yeah. Oh my god. So, that's what our scientists are doing. Right. Getting teaspoonfuls of neutron stars and clocking flea races. Wow. I wonder who won. <laughs> I don't know. Not the space shuttle. <laughs> Apparently. I, yeah. Was it a one-to-one 
right? Do they have well, the flea and the space shuttle go at the same well, time? Well, and that's the other thing. Like, the space shuttle can leave the atmosphere. Can you flee? Mm. I don't think so. Well, why don't you take several seats? That's a that's I mean, a you don't point. need several or, seats. Or you're a flea. You know, leave. Or just leave. Just go out through the just atmosphere. Buy. You know? Give it a shot. So, how was your vacation? It was very good. It was nice. Take creepy. some days off work. No, nothing creepy happened, actually. <gasps> it was a very nice time. You're killing me. You're not helping me at all. I know. I'm really sorry about that. I brought you freaky science. I know, but that's, frankly, no offense, but, like, you're always the one that has the creepy stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah. I love creepy science so much. <laughs> I love slash hate it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And all the weird shit's always happening to you, not well, me. And the, and the thing is, too, about freaky science, I read these things, and I'm no closer to understanding a scientific fact. No, in no way. I'm actually less close. Uh, yeah. When I read those, I'm, I'm, I'm like, look, I know less science than I knew five minutes ago. Same here, 100%. When I hear these things, my brain just stops Okay, well, there goes that year in college. Mm-hmm. There it goes. Throw that out the window. So sorry. <laughs> so, I have a super cool topic today. Yay, please tell me what it is. We've talked about past life regression on this show before. Mm-hmm. But what if I told you there's such a thing as future life progression? I wouldn't believe you. That does not sound real. Okay, well, we don't actually know if it's real, but, okay, you know, good. these hypnotherapists seem to think it's real. That's really weird. People doing it seem to think it's real. Ooh. Future life progression is a hypnotherapeutic technique where the patient is guided to experience a life at some point in the future. Science is beginning to find that time, rather than being linear, as we've always thought, might actually be fractal. So think of it as like the leaves on a tree. Things yeah. are just kind of all happening. All This is one of those moments where I understand science less than I did 30 of seconds course. before yeah. I yeah. said the sentence. Mm-hmm. But that's what the smart people say. Well, good for them. And they could be making things up because I can't check it. Mm-hmm. So I... I'm just going to read some examples of people who had them. All right. And the stories they tell. And it it links into past life regression in, in the same way that they recognize people from this current life and that life, but in different roles, different genders, different relationships. Hmm. It's part of your whole soul contract. You reincarnate with members of your soul group. And it's just along that journey. Mm -hmm. And so apparently you plan these lives out. The following excerpts are from C.V. Lamont's book, From Birth to Rebirth, Gnostic Healing for the 21st Century. By 2061, the atmosphere is less polluted. However, clean water was a problem in the oceans and lakes, so the water supply was now coming from the glaciers. Interplanetary travel was possible. Contact with extraterrestrials had become commonplace. I don't know when that book was written. Hmm, yeah. But it sounds a lot to me like by 20, by the year 2000. Right, yeah. We had kind flying of does, cars yeah. because that's just and 40 years BFFs from now. And we're BFFs with Martians. Yeah, it I mean, does definitely 40 feel. years from now, I don't think interplay, like we're struggling to get electric cars on the road. Right, right. So I'm not convinced we're going to be traveling between the planets. Well, I think some people might be. It's well, just not going to be... be sending stuff out to Mars and they're trying to set. I mean, mm-hmm. it depends on what they mean, but people aren't right. catching the moon Uber. No, probably not. No. Probably not, no. And I realize the moon's not a planet. Leave me alone. <laughs> Stop typing. <laughs> I know. 
Oh, contact with extraterrestrials had become commonplace. Yeah, I find that yeah. difficult in the next 40 years. That we're just going to be like, yeah, anyway, that's just They normal. show up next year, I'm going to be very embarrassed. But right, I same. Feel, and just say, hey, we're going to help you guys out because, uh, you know, we they saw just gesture, this. gesture broadly. Yes, exactly. Yes, yeah. <laughs> we saw this going on mm-hmm. and uh, we're stepping in. Yes. By 2234, sometimes some things were made of a special plastic material that could be suspended in the air by an energy source up to 60 stories high. Education was carried out by computer connections and schools had become too violent by 2100. I mean, that could be happening yeah. this year. That's, um, that feels a little <laughs> on the nose, yeah. to be honest. <laughs> I feel personally attacked, but okay. Yeah. yeah. Earthquakes had caused much destruction. Mm. By 2310, communication was mostly telepathic, and humans could travel with or without the physical body. Well, sure. Mm-hmm. Why not? Mm-hmm. Interesting idea. By 2406, wormhole technology was being used for space vehicles. People were taller and had larger brains. That might actually be well, true. Well, yeah. I mean, we just keep getting I don't know taller. about in 2400, though. That's a short time frame, but like... Right. Maybe like 10,000 years. Yeah, it, it well, could definitely. be. I don't think like... In and even just like a little bit taller, sure. I believe yeah. you. Communication was both verbal and telepathic. By 3012, some cities found it necessary to be enclosed in a protective bubble for protection and because of the harsh environmental conditions. Nuclear weapons were still present and as ominous as ever. Terrorist activity and the resultant destruction had begun to worsen by 2785. People wore light restrictive clothing and numbers were often used for names. Oh, well, that sounds delightful. Wow. Yeah, it does feel a little like a whatever sci-fi Like a dystopian young adult type. Right, exactly. Which it might be. Who knows? Right. Everything that was like, in 2000, we'll all be using tablets, which now it's like, well, I guess we are all using tablets, so, you know, whatever. But also we were traveling to, you know, other planets. Right, exactly. Yeah, you were using the tablet on your spaceship way out in the middle of the universe. Mm -hmm. The following episode. Excerpt is from Brian L. Weiss's book, Same Soul, Many Bodies, Discover the Healing Power of Future Lives Through Progression Therapy. And Dr. Weiss is the doctor we talked about when we did our past life regression episode. Mm -hmm. So he's all up in this. Past lives, forward lives, the whole shebang. Mm -hmm. There are far fewer people because of a nuclear catastrophe or plague or the lowering of the fertility rate. I mean, some version of which all of these we're experiencing now. Right, yeah. doesn't really take a yeah. profit to mm-hmm. see that coming. People are content, happy, blissful. The scene is idyllic. That doesn't sound like us. I don't. Yeah, no, I really can't see <laughs> really? that. Like basically, that happened. Yeah. What Garden of Eden, and then that was it. Yeah, like it lasted and, and about twenty five minutes. Yeah, like a day. Yeah, I don't think that's. Uh, I don't. No. I don't see that being the future. No. It'd be nice. The Earth is very green, much greener and more fertile than it is now. The forests are lush. The meadows filled with flowers. But funnily enough, there are no animals. Hmm. Why, when there's so much food for them to eat? There aren't many people either. They communicate with one another telepathically, and their bodies, less dense than ours, are filled with light. Again, doesn't sound like us. No, are you really in heaven? Does. Like this doesn't heaven? sound like people actually at all. No, it doesn't sound like Earth. Mm-mm. No. They live in small groups, not cities, in lovely houses made of wood or stone, and they seem to be farmers. I can see liquid... Farmers of what? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I, I can see liquid or liquid light pouring into the plants. Sometimes the liquid pours into the people themselves. 
The people are extremely spiritual. I can't see any illness or any real anger or any violence or war. There's a certain translucent quality to everything, a permeating light that connects everyone and everything in peace. I think you're having a trip. I was just going to say this. <laughs> I don't do drugs, but this sounds but like But this drugs. sounds like, you know, I have never done any kind of drugs, but I have been with people who mm-hmm. have. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like things people have explained to me, they're them going through yeah, while sorry. they were like on LSD. That's or, not any kind of progression. That's straight up just you're on a yeah, trip. Yeah, you're just, yeah. Sounds just like a nice one. Having, I'm happy you had no, it. No, there's no animals. So no. Oh, that's true. That's weird. Unless they live in groups and the animals don't live there because, you know, they're sick of our shit. Right, which they, so they should just, be. Like, oh, maybe we're on like the reservations. Maybe we're in the maybe zoos. we should be. Yeah, that's really weird. Of course, we've had human zoos, and that's another whole... Okay, that's not what we're advocating, just for the record. No, that's another whole trip down how horrible can humans be. Yes. Turns out, pretty horrible. As horrible as possible. Mm. So, this is an example of forward life progression from CamillaHypnosis.com. Janet progresses to a life as John in the year 3043. Hmm. As the session begins, Janet felt she was going through a white hallway. After going through the hallway, she finds herself in a nature setting with a stream, grass, flowers, and mountains. Very colorful, very bright, vibrant, so much so it looks almost perfect. The sky's purple. I didn't know what to make of it, so I asked, "Is the, in this perfect nature, do you feel anything missing at all? Okay, that's her, um, her regressionist is speaking. Gotcha. Yeah, people, Janet giggled. She's not sure where she is, almost like those in-between places. I asked her to take a walk through the grass. You may meet someone there waiting for you. She finds someone behind a tree waving at her. That someone behind the tree has a distinct feature about him. He has three fingers. Okay. This someone does not talk, but makes noises with his tongue. Tick-tacka, tick-a-tacka. Ooh. As we go along, Janet starts to know that this is another planet that is not as advanced as Earth, and Janet finds herself as a male in that life, named John. That being who comes to greet him is a housing engineer. The tick-a-tack sound language doesn't work for Janet. That is not something we humans can actually imitate. However, they can communicate telepathically. I suppose if you had a chip, mm-hmm. you can... I mean, they, there's, they're already experiment, experimenting with that yeah. sort of, like, communication... Mm-hmm. With that way, so I suppose you could have like a computer interface and yeah, and converse that way. I guess so. John says he comes to visit them quite often. The housing engineer takes John to their village. These beings live in tree houses. John helps them design them by drawing blueprints on a piece of glass. They're like more advanced, but also less advanced. No, they're less advanced. They're okay. less advanced. So we go there to visit them. Ah, and but draw blueprints. The one he's for them. meeting is the housing. I feel like if they're building the tree houses why do we have to design them that seems right. like a odd i think there's a lot to unpack in here that's psychological and mm-hmm. subconscious but mm-hmm. i'm not sold yet on the future it life sa- yeah it sounds a bit too like a like a willy wonka sort of a situation this may have I mean? been more compelling in the middle of the night when i was <laughs> reading because it, i was re- at the same time that i was doing the whole past life but this yeah. very much sounds like you're subconscious trying to work something out and maybe using kind of an outlandish story to do it but again yeah. who knows maybe it'll happen maybe i mean our lifestyle would probably sound outlandish to someone in the 1500s it's true that's definitely true oh so they go in a carriage that doesn't have horses sure. and it takes them like 10 minutes to go six miles okay yeah, whatever sure. that sounds right yeah. oh yeah women vote and run for political office and own land yeah hard path that's Reed. definitely not true nah Mm-mm. i don't think so bruh no way no Quit how. smoking <laughs> 
The housing engineer shows John the tree houses they've built with pride. The Tanika people had millions of tiny little suction cup things on their hands, Ooh. which allowed them to easily climb trees. Terrifying. Tanika is the name of the planet with a population of 80,000 inhabitants. It's a small planet with oceans. They have two suns, one close, one farther away. That may explain the vibrant colors. Asked if they are aware of Earth, they point to one direction in the sky. As Janet is a graphic designer in this life, during the session, I had her open her eyes and gave her pen and paper. She then drew the tikataka by the tree. I think that's just the sound he made. I don't I think that's so, yeah. Called. After that visit, John goes back to his small ship, more like a flying car, where his coworker George is waiting for him. They take off and fly back to Earth through a portal in which there are swirling colors. Everything stretches out, including their faces. George likes to make a face during the portal traveling. In 20 minutes, they're above the Earth. John's traveled many times this way, and each time he enjoys seeing the Earth from above, so blue and so beautiful. John returns to the office in time to have lunch. In the cafeteria, everything is automatic and service is not necessary, but they like to keep it in a nostalgic way, so there are still some old-fashioned setups. John's job is mainly helping other planets develop in the right way so they don't have to make the same mistakes that Earth made. When John returns to his office, he checks on a holographic interactive calendar on his desk, and it tells me that this is January 14, 3043, Saturday. He's working on a Saturday? I hate this I want to look that up and see if that date actually falls on a Saturday. Ooh. I'm going to do that after. We should. It seems to be usual to work on Saturdays and Sundays. I take Mondays and Tuesdays off. At this time, Earth seems to be a much nicer place to be. Less countries. People have learned to work together. It feels as if Earth has lost its ego. John enjoys his work very much, being that he has a lot of interactions with different beings, making friends and being humanitarian. I asked John what he's going to do in the afternoon. John says, I've scheduled to visit another planet. Visiting two planets in a day? Yet the way John puts it sounds nothing more than going from Vancouver to Coquitlam and Richmond during a work day. Oh, yeah, I totally know how far away those places are. Also, I looked it up, uh, January 14th, 3043. That's a Saturday. <laughs> so. Well, alrighty then. Either they looked it up beforehand and or. Maybe, yeah. But, I mean, either way, I appreciate the attention to detail. Yes, me too. Very important. Because I was 100% If it was like a Thursday, I would say trash it all. The all whole thing's a lie. Yeah. I mean, it still might be, but you're you're, right. you're, you're doing the work. My you're suspension work of in. disbelief is retained. Right. The afternoon planet John's going to visit is called Naktoka. It takes a little longer to get there. When John and George arrive from a different portal, John says it is very different from Tanika, being the whole planet looks like charcoal from above. They are little creatures there. An adult is as tall as a five-year-old on the earth. Their skin is dark clayish, sort of like an elephant's. Technologically, they seem to be more advanced than Tanika. They trade minerals and crystals, which they have plenty, with other planets to receive things to grow plants. They eat bugs and live in caves as the whole planet is desert-like. The condition looks harsh. Their sky is orange. John's work here is to help them mine and extract crystals in a safe way. Wonder why he other wears a people, lot of hats. Why do other people need those crystals, though? I don't know. This is all very weird. This is the kind of thing where, like, I don't know how to believe any of the future ones. It just sounds like a dream. Yeah. Like a very detailed dream. People on this planet like to hold hands. That's how they communicate. When they come to meet John, they hold hands with him. Again, Janet drew a picture of one of the little creatures stretching out one arm to take John's hand. Upon leaving, they present John with a gift, an amber crystal. 
It's an honor for me, John says. They asked John to take it back and study it, as there might be information of the history of their planet. They are a survival group from a natural disaster, not knowing much of their own history. Hmm. John then takes his flying vehicle with George and goes back to Earth. What's George doing in all this? George is not giving he's me a lot. He's just like the Uber driver? He's really just not giving me a he's lot. He's like, he well, I'm going to make some funny faces. Maybe he's the pilot. Maybe. He gives the amber crystal to the lab. After work, he goes to play basketball. Oh, well, not that much has changed. Also, I think it's funny that their names are like George and John. I wonder if those are their actual names or... Well, yeah, that does seem... Where's Ringo? I know. And Janet. (laughs) I don't know. John takes his own flying vehicle going home. His five-year-old daughter greets him with her drawings. I instruct John to turn on TV and watch the world news. John describes what a TV set is like, something quite hard for me to comprehend. Climate change makes South America too hot to live. There is a plan to relocate people from there. The news shows that there are some rebellions against it. It's dinner time. I asked John who cooks the dinner. John is amused. Cooking? It's just a matter of pushing some buttons and food manifests itself. Okay, this is back to the future. This is literally like where the mom goes beep, boop, beep, boop, and a pizza comes out. Like the Jetsons. Yeah. I don't want the flying car. I want Rosie. Mm -hmm. Come and do everything. Exactly. That's really the dream. John is having salmon, and the daughter is having macaroni and cheese. Typical children food, even a thousand years later. See, kids' food even 50 years ago was different. Right, that's kind of where I'm, like, suspicious. It's not like, not that macaroni and cheese is not the perfect food, because it is. I just feel like they gotta have other stuff. You know? They just gotta. I am struggling yes. <laughs> with the future life yes. Well, there's I, I don't think, think there's a way not to. I think it's the concept is fascinating if you re, if you progress people into these supposed lives that they have mm-hmm. and you actually figure out a problem and you unlock something in the subconscious. Mm-hmm. Do I think they're really seeing a future life? I'm I'm having a hard time with yeah. that. Yeah, it's simultaneously like two different and two the same. You know what I mean? Well, right, it just it's it just it just seems like something you'd make up in a dream, right, like the past exactly. life ones, where they could where they could verify some information. Mm-hmm. Yeah, seemed a little more concrete, and that's another issue. You can't verify anything. Well, uh, yeah, no. But they just sound out outland. They sound like what someone from twenty years ago thought the future should be like. Right, exactly. And they're still mac <clears throat> and cheese. Yeah, yeah, exactly. John's wife works in a hospital, so she gets home late. She has the same meal as John, who sits with her while she has her supper and talks about the stress of the day. John himself is very well-balanced and composed, just like Janet. Hmm, well, good for Janet. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I think that might just be a wild imagination. (laughs) That part I don't believe. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's funny that where we both got stuck was the mac and cheese. Oh, they were like, eh. <laughs> there were all sorts of things. We're like, hmm, maybe, hmm, mac and cheese. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, no, they're, they've definitely made something better than mac and cheese in the next thousand years. I have to believe. Although, I don't know if there's too many things better than baked mac and cheese. Like when the crust is all crispy. I know, but like, I'm sure they thought 50 years ago, whatever the hell they were eating. It's pretty fantastic. Yeah, it is pretty Remember jello molds? That used to be a thing. I do not remember jello yeah, molds. Yeah, you wouldn't. But, <laughs> I mean, we moved past that stage in our evolution, and that's a good thing. I, that's what I'm saying, yeah. right? From the alanjoshua.com website, Mallory, a Roman Catholic of Italian descent, experienced a future life as someone named Risha Shalem. And I will... Say as a side note, this is one of the footnotes that that's an Israeli name. Mm, oh, Shalom. 
It's S H A E L U M. Hmm. But maybe it's a shalom, shalom. I don't know. It's in the 24th century, so maybe it's a derivative of mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Risha claimed to be living in the 24th century in Yuna Pace, or the United People's Estate. Ooh. She was seven inches taller than Mallory and lived in what we now know as South America, or J1235A, stating there are no names as you know it. Sentimentality for names ceased with increased numbers of people traveling to different areas of the world. I mm-hmm. want to just put out as a big sci-fi reader, mm-hmm. that is a really common trope. Yeah, that, that's like, very, the Earth gets sound... future, and then people are like not human now, and people have numbers, and places have numbers, and everything's like a grid. And I, I don't buy it. Don't feel like that. No, we're very, very like I bought honestly more that they had like old fashioned setups in that cafeteria. Yeah. You know, where I feel like we're very nostalgic, very yeah. sentimental. All we care about are stories. I don't think we would trash names. I don't think so either. Doesn't sound like us. So, I mean, maybe we're wildly different. I in the know future. a lot of like futuristic things just make people seem like robots, but I just right. thought I'm not buying it. As Risha described it, the world in which she lives is in serious danger. The atmosphere is contaminated below the stratosphere, and sunlight is poor. The disintegration of the Earth's crust has resulted in pollutants entering the atmosphere. This sounds right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This sounds more legit. Like that, I can see that being like 2035. Oh, frankly, yeah. You yep. know? There are no seasons to speak of. The weather is gradually changing due to the atmospheric contamination. The temperature is generally warm with occasional heat storms due to accumulated debris in the atmosphere. She warns that a large-scale war, the final war, has taken place and there is great need for survival measures. All works towards this end. As one of her final comments, she states, humanity does not thrive on intelligence. It is a means to progress, not a measure of human value. An interesting statement, the phrasing and vocabulary are not typical of Mallory. In addition, as a matter of interest, many years later, Mallory did move to South America. This session took place in the 1970s. Oh, wow. I tried a future life progression meditation, but I personally got nothing at all. And I never do whenever I try Mm -hmm. those types of things. I tried many times to use guided meditations to either talk to spirit guides People who've passed on, past life regressions. I never get any imagery at all. It's like a blank slate. Hmm. I don't know if the problem is that I can't quiet my mind enough. Right. Or if I need a hypnotist to to do it for me. But I can never get anything. Not even something. Some of the sessions I watched, people said, I can't tell if I'm just making this up. Mm-hmm. Or if it's I'm seeing something real. I don't even get that. Right. Like right. something from my imagination. And, and I try. Um, I linked the guided meditation I used below, and I'd love to hear from anyone who tried it and got results. If you do, let us know on social media or at our Gmail address in the outro. If you try it and something happens, or if you try a different one and get a result, let us know. Um, And I'll try that one. I'm super interested to hear if anyone tries these yeah, yeah, I feel like I like don't have the focus. Even when I try to do yoga and they're like, oh, focus on your breathing. Like I just, I can't like I just do start it. making my grocery list or I yeah. start. Or I'm like not doing it right. Just, you know what I mean? Yeah. So my sources are camillahypnosis.com, networkologies.wordpress.com, alanjoshua.com. I linked the guided meditation I tried and also birth to rebirth Gnostic healing for the 21st century bug 
by Charles V. Tremont, and Same Soul, Many Bodies by Dr. Brian Weiss. So I have to be honest. I think it's interesting. Mm -hmm. I'd love to do it. I would take it with a grain of salt, but I'd just love to see what I'd get. Right. But I would be interested to do it right? just to see what I'd get. Mm -hmm. I would take it with a grain of salt. I think this is all your subconscious speaking. I don't know about the past life ones. I was a little bit more convinced on those. Yeah, those are like verifiable in any capacity, right? Like in any way they're verifiable. But future ones, you can say anything. In a way, though... The past, the future life ones make me question the past life ones, because if you're telling someone you're going into the past, we know what happens in the past. So are you just concocting something that fits with the past? And then when someone says a future one, your mind just goes wild because we it could just be anything. We have no idea. We know climate change is coming. We know blah, blah, blah is happening. But so those details seemed to track. But a lot of the other ones seemed just kind of crazy so I don't know and I know some people claim to have been able to verify some of the details but I am someone who says you just you never know where you picked up information especially now yeah absolutely and how much of it are people retrofitting Mm -hmm. like oh for example the one where they claimed that girl they could they could fit all these details but she said she was an age that was two years older than the girl was Yeah. yeah so I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I find it fascinating. Yeah, me too. I'm going to keep reading about it. But it's like with any of the other phenomena we talk about. Yeah. I just can't come off the fence. I just haven't heard that thing that makes me say, oh, right. yeah, 100%. This yeah. is. Well, and I think that's, you know, that's the nature of things that are paranormal, right? Yeah. Like, if there was something concrete, it would just be science. Well, but even science doesn't accept anecdotal evidence. Mm, that's true. But when people say, you know, I had a dream and my grandfather came and told, like, I, these are stories I've heard where mm-hmm. told my grandmother that he had buried a safe and it had right. all these insurance but that she didn't know about and the grandchild didn't know about and had it in a dream and it all pans out. I feel like, well, how do you explain away that? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. So bottom line, I don't know what's going on. Same. I also don't know what's going on. <laughs> well, we know what's going on with your stories. <sighs> that we do. And it's not good this week. I know that that surprises you. This is a really sad story. Can you believe it? Can we go back to the crazy internet one? <gasps> Someday. Maybe. Because that was fun. That was uh, kind of fun. Yeah, or, this one's not or fun. Or the, uh, the, uh, the Bertha Heyman, Big Bertha. Mm-hmm. I like Big yeah. Bertha. Yeah, me too. I like Big Bertha. This All isn't right. that. Hit this me with really it. really sad. Okay. I need a cannoli, so let's, let's go. <laughs> yes, we're having cannolis We're having cannolis so. today. Yeah. We've got to talk about the food that we're eating. That's like borderline the most well, important Well, we had part the tacos podcast. already, but... We did. Believe it or not, I'm starving right now. Me, I'm very hungry. I'm going to read this as fast as humanly possible. <laughs> um, so today, actually, I'm doing a story that was shared to us by a listener. Um, mm. So I'm going to be telling the story of Joe Arity. Ooh. Yes. Very, very sad. Oh, and do you have the name of the listener? I just want to shout I don't. Up. I don't think that they included a name. We yeah, have their they, email address. We had but, like a username. Yeah, I don't want to give out an email address, but exactly. I don't have a name. Right. But you know who you are, and we're going to send you an email to thank you. And yes. we really love... When listeners write in mm-hmm. yeah. and give us their stories, you may not hear them right away because we we have a little bit of a backlog, but right. keep sending them. We will get to them. We promise. Yes, absolutely. And if you do want us to include your name, just include that in the email. Yep. And we'll say, and if you don't, mum's a word. Exactly. 
1909, Henry and Mary Arity emigrated from Syria to Pueblo, Colorado. There, Henry worked for Colorado Fuel and Iron Works, and the couple lived in an area called Bessemer in a group of small bungalows owned by the company. In 1915, Mary gave birth to their first son, whom they named Joe. Important later, his name is Joe, not Joseph. At first, Joe seemed like a completely normal kid, um, but he didn't actually speak until he was five years old, so a little bit later than most kids. Um, but his cognitive difficulties became much more apparent once he went to school. So he got through first grade with some difficulties, um, but before he could start second grade, the school's principal actually asked the Arities to keep their son at home and not to send him to school, which, like, this kid doesn't even deserve an education. That seems mm. not great to me, but... And plus, what are you supposed to do with him? <laughs> Were they working or, well, maybe just the dad? The dad was working. Yeah, yeah. I guess I forget. So... That's right. not how that worked. But right, exactly. I'm thinking, what do you do about daycare? To... <laughs> it didn't happen. Didn't need it. Right, exactly. So for the next three years, Joe stayed home and played like any other child would do. In 1923, Joe's brother George was born, and in 1924, his sister Amelia was born. So they had a few more kids. During this time, so the 20s, Henry Arity had apparently begun bootlegging in order to support his growing family, and he spent some time in and out of jail. So this made caring for Joe, in addition to the younger children, pretty difficult for Mary because she was pretty much by herself. And so Joe spent a lot of time unsupervised because he was a little bit older than his siblings, walking around Pueblo on his own. In January of 1926, Joe's father Henry felt frustrated with his son and his challenges and asked his neighbors for advice on what to do. They suggested Henry go before the Pueblo District Court and Joe was committed to the Colorado State Home and Training School for Mental Defectives at Grand Junction, which is like a horrible, horrible name for something, but that is what it was called. I'm very sorry. Joe was only about 10 or 11 years old at the time. But less than a year later, Henry apparently began to miss his son and petitioned the court to have him returned home. And Joe picked up his old habit of wandering around Pueblo, which like, if he's going somewhere to get care, and then when you bring him home, you're just like, all right, just like, go do whatever you do. You know what I mean? It's just but it's really so weird. different. Like people just put someone away somewhere when yeah. they were a nuisance. Yeah. Now you'd have services and maybe someone could come to the house and I mean yeah. he probably is what we would now recognize here I am again I'm gonna go start but but like either autistic or some mm -hmm. kind of other like I don't know right. specifically but right he would probably have a diagnosis of some sort right and services of some sort yeah I would hope so yeah you would think you would think right in September of 1929 a probation officer happened upon Joe, and it sounds to me, based on the account that I've read, that Joe was being sexually assaulted by some other boys. Ugh. Yeah. But rather than showing care for Joe, what had happened to him, the probation officer only showed disgust for for Joe allowing these things to happen to him, which is horrible, horrible, horrible. Welcome to womanhood. Oh, it's terrible. Joe was returned to the Colorado State home where he'd previously been as a result of a letter written by the probation officer who discovered him in Pueblo. Joe was 14 years old and remained in the state home for seven more years. There, they determined that his IQ was about 46, which I think the average for an adult is about 100. Um, and they thought that he had the intelligence and understanding of that of a six-year-old boy. So he definitely has some developmental challenges here. I mean, how do you even prosecute someone with the mental acuity of a... You shouldn't be able to. Of a baby, basically. You shouldn't be able to. But... This is not a happy story. Uh -uh. So 
On August 9, 1936, Joe and three other boys decided to take a 24-hour trip away from the institution where they lived. The Union Pacific Railroad tracks were close by to the state home, and it was pretty common for boys staying there to hop onto a freight train passing by. Like, this was kind of typical. The four boys hopped on a train to Pueblo, and three of them explored the town while Joe stayed at the freight yard and wandered around. The next day, they hopped on the train back to Grand Junction. And on August 12th, they returned to the institution, except for Joe. He decided that he didn't want to go back to the state home, so he didn't. This actually ended up being a really awful decision for Joe to have made, and I think that he probably had a bit pretty bad time in the state home, but things are really not going to get any better from, for him from here on out. For the next eight days, no one knows exactly what Joe was up to, but on August 20th, he, dis he was discovered in the railroad yards in East Cheyenne, Wyoming, about 350 miles from Grand Junction where he'd first started out. There, he met Mr. and Mrs. Glenn Gibson, who ran a kitchen car for Union Pacific. Joe offered to work for food, and they hired him to wash dishes. Unfortunately, this lasted for less than a week, since the car needed to move east, and I don't really understand this, but apparently Joe was not an authorized employee, which meant that he could not move with the train. I don't really, I don't understand that well enough to explain it, but that is what I read. So basically, he wasn't allowed to stay with this job, even though he'd only been there for a few days. On August 26th, Mrs. Gibson drove Joe back to the East Cheyenne Railroad Yards, where they'd originally met him. Not long later, Joe was arrested by railroad detectives, and he was turned over to the sheriff of Laramie County, George J. Carroll. August of that year was a terrifying one for the people of Pueblo, Colorado. On August 2nd, a week before Joe and his friends hopped a freight train for their trip away from the state home, two women were attacked in their home by an intruder with a hammer. Mrs. R.O. McMurtry, who was 58 years old, survived the attack, but her aunt, 72-year-old Sally Crumpley, died of skull fractures. Less than two weeks later, and three blocks away, on August 15th, the time during which Joe's whereabouts are unknown, but it seems like he was probably traveling the 350 miles that it took him to get all the way to Wyoming, another attack took place. That night, two teen girls, Dorothy Drain, who was 15 years old, and her sister Barbara, who was 12, were attacked in their sleep while their parents were at a charity dance. Dorothy was sexually assaulted and killed by blows to the head. Her sister Barbara was also attacked but managed to survive and woke up after two weeks in a coma. The weapon used had both blunt and sharp edges, leading to police to believe that they'd been attacked with a hatchet. The police posted a $1,000 reward, which is equivalent to about $20,000 today. Any suspected sex criminals were rounded up throughout the Southwest. A patient who escaped from the Pueblo State Hospital was shot to death while supposedly resisting arrest. So they're pretty, pretty you know, doing everything that they can to find this guy. 11 days after the attack on the Drain Girls, Joe Arity was arrested. He was an escaped asylum patient with a record of perverse sexual behavior, which they didn't have any perverse sexual behavior on record for him when he was in the state home. So this is obviously going back to when he was assaulted. So pretty fucked up. And when Joe told Sheriff Carroll that he was from Pueblo, an hour and a half later, Carol called the Pueblo chief of police, J. Arthur Grady, and told him that they were holding a man who said he'd killed the drain girl in Pueblo. Carol told Grady, he's a nut. He can't even read or write. And he's told us two or three different stories, but he seems to know all about the drain murder. And I wouldn't be surprised if he is the man you want. Grady was so shocked, he said later that he almost dropped the phone. And this was in part because Grady had a man in custody and he'd had him in custody for six days and they believe that this was the person who attacked the drain girl. So pretty shocking when he hears, well, I have a guy that I'm trying to get to confess 
And you say you have another guy that also confessed. Maybe we should look into it and see if maybe they both were involved and maybe we don't just go, oh, must be that guy. Yes, well, you know, we'll see. So Grady had decided to keep the fact that they had a suspect quiet since he didn't want to make any public pronouncements until he had a solid confession. A 35-year-old Mexican man named Frank Aguilar had worked for the Works Progress Administration in Pueblo until he was fired by Riley Drain, Dorothy and Barbara's father. He attended Dorothy's funeral, despite having been fired, and apparently acted suspiciously while he was there. He was arrested and his house was searched without a warrant because they didn't give a fuck about anything at this period of time. Um, But they did find in a basket in his home covered by rags, a hatchet with notches in it that the coroner believed matched the weapon use in the attack. So they didn't have a warrant, but this is pretty significant evidence that at least that this is the right hatchet, whether or not they have the right guy. So now police had two men in custody, one with a huge amount of evidence against him who refused to confess and another who confessed, but didn't have any evidence against him at all. Let's go with that one. Let's go with that one. Or better yet, let's go with both which is what they ended up doing. Yeah. For three hours, Chief Grady and Sheriff Carroll went back and forth on the phone with each other. And at the end of it, suddenly, Joe was able to give much more specific details about the crime he'd confessed to. Originally, he'd supposedly said he'd beaten the girls with a club, but then he changed it to a hatchet after Grady and Carroll spoke to each other, which is, okay, that's pretty fucking suspicious, I have to say. And there was no written account of Joe's confession before or after the men had discussed Joe. So... Also suspicious. Unlike Chief Grady, Sheriff Carroll didn't care much about keeping things quiet with the media. Instead, he called up the Pueblo chieftain newspaper and told them that he discovered the murderer. He told them that Joe had attacked the girls, quote, just for meanness, which is like, the fuck kind of a motive is that? That's ridiculous. Joe had apparently confessed to acting alone, but the Pueblo district attorney apparently told the paper that it seemed another man is implicated and we have requested his arrest. I feel sure this man can be located, which, um, yeah, he was pretty fucking easy to locate <laughs> since they already had arrested he him, had him in and he'd been in custody for six days. So like, lo and behold, there he fucking was. Shocking. Cops in Pueblo were able to find a witness to Joe's being in town on the day of the crime. A pawnbroker named Saul Kahn claimed a man named Joseph Arity purchased a pistol from him, which, if you remember, his name isn't Joseph Arity, it's Joe Arity. Mm -hmm. His parents did not name him Joseph, so it would be really weird if he came and said his name was Joseph. Like, that's not a very good alias at all, actually, if he's trying to hide anything. Also, it's important that Joe didn't know how to count, Mm -hmm. so how would he have paid for a gun? A reader, right? Right, he didn't have any experience with numbers at all, so I or purchasing things, so this seems pretty unlikely. Joe also apparently confessed to more crimes, including the murder of Sally Crumpley, which we know took place when he was still at the state home. Like, it wasn't possible for him to have committed this crime. He also said that he was responsible for an attack on a woman in Colorado Springs. So it's clear that they're just saying to him, like, what about this? It seems like you did this. He's like, sure, yeah. Because he was honestly just easy to please. Like, mm-hmm. or not easy to please. He's eager. eager to please. Yeah, he yeah. just wanted... You know, everybody well, to like him. the adults told me I did, so I guess I did. Right, exactly. And, like, he has no understanding whatsoever of the consequences of this stuff, which is really, really terrible. Frank Aguilar continued to maintain his innocence for another five days. On September 2nd, in front of a court reporter, unlike Joe's confession, 15 days after being arrested, he confessed. He said he'd heard a few men talking about Riley Drain and his wife going to a dance that night and went to their home where he waited for them to leave before going into the house and committing the crimes. 
Whenever it was suggested to him, Frank included Joe in the crimes. Here's an excerpt from Frank's discussion with the DA. French Taylor, the Pueblo DA, asked Frank, When you met Joe, then you and Joe talked about going up and attacking these girls. Is that right? Frank Aguilar said, Yes, sir. He then said that Barbara woke up while he was assaulting Dorothy, told him to get out, and that's when he hit Barbara on the head. When asked what he did next, he said, Finish what I was doing. Taylor asked, You finished what you were doing? You finished assaulting the big girl? And Frank said, Yes. Taylor said, When you got up from finishing assaulting the big girl, what did Joe do? And Frank said, I got out on the side. Not even mentioning Joe a little bit. Taylor said, Then Joe assaulted the big girl, didn't he? And Frank said, Yes. So literally just answering whatever it is. Now, was did Frank have any issues too? It doesn't seem like it, um, based on the information that we have, but I think at this time, like... Because his answers almost seem like he doesn't quite understand the question, or... Yeah, maybe he doesn't. Taylor finally asked, after Joe got through assaulting the girl, what did you do to her? And Frank said, I hit her. So, according to this conversation between Frank and the DA, Frank, who's a sexual deviant, was angry about being fired, discovered an opportunity for revenge, and planned to attack at least one of Riley Drain's daughters. On the way, he happened to meet another man, who was also a sexual deviant, who happened to be developmentally impaired, and he decided to bring him along just for whatever reason. (laughs) Yeah. Then the two parted ways and never saw each other again. Not really sounding like that reasonable of a story to me personally. So he worked for Riley Drain? He had worked for Riley Drain and Riley Drain fired him. Yeah. And so he decided as revenge to go. I don't know if his plan was just to assault one of the girls or if he always intended to murder. I don't I don't really know. But one of the daughters did survive. Well, his intent was to murder them. But of course, you don't say that because then you're up for premeditated right. murder. Probably true. Frank's trial began on December 15th, 1936, exactly four months after the murder took place. Barbara had fully recovered and identified Frank as the strange man she'd seen that night. DA French Taylor asked if she said anything to him, and she confirmed that she told him to get out. No one asked Barbara if anyone else had been there that night. So they just said, well, we know what she's going to say, so why bother asking, pretty much, which is just really disgusting. But also, she never mentioned anyone being there. No, she didn't. And if they had asked her, she probably would have said, I didn't see anybody else there, so they didn't ask her. The jury quickly found Frank guilty, and the judge sentenced him to death. Joe's lawyer, court-appointed attorney C. Fred Barnard, entered a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity, which meant that before a trial of his innocence could begin, there needed to be a trial to determine whether or not Joe was sane by legal standards. Which is, by legal standards, it's more being able to determine the difference between right and wrong. Mm -hmm. Three psychiatrists, who at the time were called alienists, examined Joe and determined that he was incapable of distinguishing between right and wrong and therefore would be unable to perform any action with criminal intent, which is pretty much the exact legal definition of insanity. Joe was questioned and cross-examined, but more important in this case, somehow, was the testimony of four lawmen, including Sheriff Carroll, who said that their experience with criminals was enough to tell them that Joe was perfectly sane. So they know more than the, than the psychiatrists yep. about whether or not Joe is sane. Which honestly, that they were called alienists. Yeah, that's. I wonder what that comes from. I'm not sure. I don't really know why. I feel like the name for psychiatrists has changed a lot. Right, but alienist seems weird. Alien. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not sure where that comes from I'm exactly. Curious. Yeah. Continue with your enjoyable, delightful story. I shall. The jury ruled in favor of the lawmen rather than the alienists, and Joe was found to be legally sane, because this is the most frustrating story in the world. Mm -hmm. 
Joe's trial began on April 12, 1937. Barbara Drain was not called to testify, but the pawnbroker Saul Kahn was. The only physical evidence was a hair found at the scene that supposedly matched Joe's, which of course there's there was not DNA testing at this time. They basically looked at the hair and said, yes, this looks like this other person's hair. Um, and also pretty importantly, there was no record of any hair being found at the scene until Joe had already been arrested. So where did this hair come from? If they like they plucked it off his head and then said, oh, look, this looks like his hair. That's kind of what it seems like to me. The star witness was Sheriff Carroll, who recalled verbatim exactly how Joe had confessed to him. Never mind the fact that he'd originally said Joe confessed to attacking the girls with a club and he didn't even know what a hatchet was when they asked him. So how could he have attacked the, girl, attacked the girls with a hatchet if he didn't even know what a hatchet was? Mm-hmm. Doesn't seem likely. The jury deliberated for three and a half hours and Joe was found guilty and sentenced to death. According to the Pueblo chieftain, he took no notice of the pronouncement of the death verdict as delivered by the jury foreman. So he probably didn't even know what was going on. He didn't even understand. The $1,000 reward was given to Sheriff Carroll and the railroad oh, detectives who'd first found Joe shocking? and turned him over. Doesn't that surprise you? Isn't that such shocking information? Frank Aguilar was executed on August 13, 1937, almost exactly a year after the attack. Joe was scheduled to be executed on October 16th, but the prison warden, a man named Roy Best, took a particular interest in Joe and worked with his attorney to get nine stays of execution. So they knew that this wasn't right. And even if Joe had done it, he did not understand the difference between right and wrong and that Mm -hmm. this was not how things should go. And also, they probably were pretty sure that he didn't have anything to do with it. This is clearly set up. So alienus comes from the French word alien, which means insane. Oh, well, that makes sense then. That's kind of offensive, but just insaneists. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's not as good as psychiatrists. Insaneologists. Oh, that would be the correct terminology. Yes, I prefer that. Good point. Good point. So Warden Best also got Joe an appeals lawyer, Gail Ireland, who did what he could to get Joe's case transferred to a new county and to a new judge, but they weren't able to do it. Joe was considered the happiest man on death row. He seemed to not really understand that his own death was imminent, and he spoke happily with the warden and other other inmates during his time on death row. He spent most of his time playing with a toy train and wind-up car that had been giving, given to him, and apparently all these other convicted killers on death row like were very patient with him and would like play with his car with him and stuff, which is... They must have all known it was just a travesty. Yeah, they must have. Even that like convicted killers who maybe had no conscience, like they realized that this was fucked up. Warden Best gave Joe children's books with pictures of funny faces, and Joe cut the pictures out with scissors. He polished a dinner plate and kept it in his cell, where he would make his own funny faces into it. On January 6, 1939, Joe requested ice cream as his last meal and ate it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. He smoked cigars and ate homemade candy given to him by Warden Best and his wife. His mother and other relatives visited him, but his mother's tears didn't really bother Joe. He just kind of went back to his cell and didn't really think much of it. He gave his toy train to another inmate before he was led to the gas chamber. Riley Drain, who attended the execution of Frank Aguilar, was not there for Joe Arity's death. His remains were buried at a spot called Woodpecker Hill in the prison cemetery with a motorcycle plate marking his grave. Nothing really happened with this case for a really long time after this. Nobody really thought anything of it or talked about it until 1991, when a man named Robert Persky, an author and advocate for the disabled, discovered a poem written by a warden about an execution. Part of it read, The man you kill tonight is six years old. He has not idea why he dies. 
Which is awful. I feel bad for that guy because he's standing there helpless. He can't do anything and he right. knows. Yeah. This is just a miscarriage of justice because some jerk wanted a thousand dollars. Literally, though. That's yeah. what it came yeah. down to. Yeah. Persky ultimately published a book, Deadly Innocent, about what happened to Joe Arity. Gail Ireland's granddaughter created an advocacy group and a website called the Friends of Joe Arity, which resulted in the case being reexamined. In January of 2011, Governor of Colorado Bill Ritter granted Joe Arity a full and unconditional posthumous pardon. The rusting motorcycle plate was replaced with a marble headstone with a picture of Joe playing with his toy train. The words, here lies an innocent man, are etched into the stone. Now wonder if his, any of his siblings were still alive when that happened. I'm not sure. I mean, they were born in 1924, like 1923, 1924, so it's so, possible. So it's, yeah. But I don't know. But this also was during a time when eugenics was pretty popular and they made it legal if somebody was considered to be mentally unwell it was completely fine to execute them yeah, because the, they didn't want to pass on deficient genes the american nazis it's awful we, awful we awful. had them yep we sure did we don't like to admit it but we had them we have them yeah <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately yep that's absolutely true yeah, that's the really, really sad story of Joe Arity. Um, thank you to the listener who reached out and told us about that story, because I don't think I would have found it otherwise. No. It was really, really interesting. Really, really, really sad. And like you said, sad. a huge miscarriage of justice. And I think, like, we talk about a lot of people who, like, very obviously, we feel like corporal punishment is the right, or capital mm -hmm. punishment is the right thing. But I think, like, stuff like this and any other cases where the wrong person is executed, I think it's hard to support, you know... My problem with capital punishment is that we're flawed. Our judgment exactly. is flawed, mm -hmm. and we have a system that's flawed, and it's yeah. based on financial means. Like, right. Can you hire a good exactly. enough lawyer? And as long as that's the case, I don't feel like you can be doling out the ultimate punishment. Right. But the problem is you have to ensure people actually go to jail and stay there and you mm -hmm. don't have someone overturning things right. or letting them go or deciding they've, you know, now could get parole. Right. If you put someone away for life, that needs to mean life and people aren't comfortable with that. So they think, well, if he's dead. Right. He can't get out. Right. So, exactly. And it wastes a huge amount of money. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It wastes way more money than keeping them. Right. In prison. Yes. Yeah. But that doesn't mean they need to be out. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That's why, like, last week we talked about Bobby Fry, who's clearly a terrible, terrible person. But, like, I think that him staying alive in prison for his minimum of 120 years sentence yeah. is worth it if other people who are innocent don't get put to death. Right. And he, they're not having fun in there. I don't think that even if they supposedly found God. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. This is a rough one today. Well, that was a bummer. It was a bummer. I'm so mine sorry. Mine was more fun. Yours was a lot more fun. I don't know if mine was real, but that would also make it more fun than your story. <laughs> but Real least, or not, yeah. Well, I think that the experiences real people have them. I don't mm -hmm. know if they're really seeing a future life, but right. I'd, I'd love to do one. I think it would be interesting. Yeah, I wish we could get it to work. That'd be really cool. I wonder if Joe Arity has reincarnated. Maybe. I hope he got another shot. A you better know? shot. A much better shot. People suck. Yeah. People are terrible. Yeah. I'm not... We're overrated. We might be overrated. Yeah. I think that's what we're learning on this podcast, <laughs> is we are deeply, deeply People are overrated. highly overrated. Oh, yes. And ruin everything. Yeah. I think they are. 
Well, but I don't know about you, but I'm going to get some cannoli. I'm also going to have some, cheer myself up with some cannoli. Some cannoli. Yeah, I think so. Thanks for listening, guys. If you enjoyed this episode and want to be part of the conversation, join our social media community on Facebook and Instagram at Cul-de-Sac Insomniac, Twitter at CDSI Pod. If you have a story you'd like us to cover or an experience of your own you'd like us to feature on the podcast, let us know at culdesacinsomniac at gmail.com. If you follow us on Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating and a good review. Say something nice about us. It makes us feel good. It helps with the algorithm. And you can go to our website at culdesacinsomniac.com where you can read our show notes and listen to the podcast. And you can sign up for our newsletter. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.